0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiled is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. I'm here with uh, James Robinson, who is a university professor at the University of Chicago and also the author of multiple books. Most recently, this book here, The Narrow Corridor. States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty, which is preceded by Why Nations Fail, both of which were co-authored with Darren Esamoliu. And you also authored this one, also with Darren, which is Economic Origins of Dictatorship and Democracy. And then you edited this book, Natural Experiments in History. Now, as a university professor, I guess that's the ultimate interdisciplinary position because you don't have to actually Belong to any kind of department. You're an economist as much as you are a political scientist, and the theme that you that runs through all of your work is this interrelationship between politics and economics. I think in, in the Why Nations Fail book, you're focused on the prosperity and where prosperity comes from, and then in the Narrow carter book, it's kind of liberty and where liberty comes from, and these two things are very closely related. So maybe we can go back to the beginning when you first started doing research, and I kind of want to know what drove you to pursue these questions, and why did you find the existing answers unsatisfactory? I mean, I was studying history in the late 80s, and that's when I first started thinking about the same things that you were thinking about, and it seemed like the solutions that were out there, the answers to these questions, they were unsatisfactory, and the world really was crying out for new, new analyses and new solutions. So tell me kind of, where did this all begin?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) I think that I was very interested in questions of comparative economic development when I was an undergraduate at the London School of Economics and when I was a PhD student at Yale. But most classes in development economics didn't actually talk about questions like this. They didn't talk about why some countries are rich and some other countries are poor. They just talk about the impact of different sorts of policy interventions, like some evaluation of some World Bank program, or if we do this or that. So you don't really even discuss like why African countries are poorer than we are. You just talk about, well, we need to do things to help them, and here's something we could do, and we estimate the impact and things like that. So I found that sort of bizarre. The one place where this topic came up, Actually, more was in economic history, because in economic history, we talk about the great divergence and economic historians talk about why did Europe succeed and China didn't succeed. So in fact, when I was an undergraduate, Darren and I, we both read Thomas's book, The Rise of the Western World. And that was about exactly about this big divergence. And that, to me, that seemed to be just much more about what I was interested in rather than development economics. But the problem with economic history also was that where was the politics? I was doing lots of things at the same time. And I was trying to understand this topic and trying to understand the historical stuff. But that just seemed so, how could you do research on that? It's so complicated. You have to know so many things. It just was just seemed like impossible to ever really do anything. So I was reading, reading, and the more I investigated things, the more I just came to this brick wall, which is, this is about politics. It's about why doesn't anyone talk about politics? Economists didn't talk about politics. This is a sort of late 1980s. Political economy didn't exist. Nobody talked about politics and development economics. And so, so I just started trying to find my way through the library and just chasing footnotes and references and trying to piece together some kind of picture of underdevelopment and comparative development where politics sort of came into it. And I think Daron and I sort of independently arrived at the same place. We didn't know each other until I finished my PhD and he was a student. I met him when he was a PhD student at the LSE. And then we started talking. And I think we were both in the same place, which is, here's a question we're interested in. Like nobody's really studying it the way we'd like to study. Here is what we think the answer is. How do we put all that together? So I think it was just, yeah, I don't know. It was dissatisfaction with how people talk about these questions. And it was political economy didn't really exist. So you had to kind of create it. (laughs) So that was a challenge also of a a kind of different sort of challenge. I mean, of course, there were great scholars working in that field like Barry Weingast. But a kind of previous generation technologically in terms of research methods and things like that. So I think a lot of our early work was trying to take things we knew how to do, kind of mathematical techniques, game theory, or whatever, statistical work, and then just like trying to find questions we could sort of break off and chew and make some progress on. And, but that when I was a PhD student, that was just kind of overwhelming for me. I couldn't see how to do it with, just, with these things, and it was just too complicated. It just, it just takes time to kind of find an entry point and find something you can make progress on.
0: But so it's interesting that you mentioned that there was no political economy. I mean, political economy, that was the only kind of discipline there was at one point back in the 19th century, right? So why do you think that political economy kind of disappeared or became, we had these specializations in political science and economics. I mean, at one point in one of your books, you said that economics, I think you were quoting and a learner, and you said, yeah, we're, economics only works when politics has been solved, right? It's like a special case, the stuff that we learn in economics, right?
1: Yeah, I suppose, you know, you, these people like Volra and everyone were trying to simplify and focus on something they could analyze. And so they concede that the, this economy, should sort of detached from politics and society. And I suppose you could say that was a very successful sort of project. In some sense, it got a lot of traction that way of thinking about economics and that way of elaborating economic theory. And it provided some very powerful insights into the world and it provided a lot of tools. And I do think it depends what type of question you're interested in. If you're interested in the way the stock market behaves or whatever, or maybe you don't need to think about, well, but probably you do need to think about politics. But I'm sure there's some questions we could think about it if we thought about it long enough where the politics is not central to what we're studying in. And the, the economic tools do generate a lot of ideas about problems in unemployment and lots of other things. So so I think it depends on what type of question you're interested in, I guess, you know how embedded it has to be in society and politics. But for us, these big questions about development, politics seem to be so central, you couldn't possibly think about this just from an economic point of view. And I think there's a lot more of interdisciplinarity nowadays than there used to be, but there's still a sort of, What I find interesting is how economists have this paradigm and like some things fit very easily into it and other things don't fit very easily into it. It's very interesting that like behavioral economics, for example, fits more easily into it than political economy because behavioral economics at the end of the day, you can still do kind of welfare economics. You can model kind of irrational decision making and a lot of people have made a lot of progress on that. But it doesn't, it's not sort of subvert the whole paradigm in a way that politics does. So there's still huge reticence in incorporating politics into economics. And most economists find it very difficult to think about politics. Yeah, and I think that one of the key insights
0: of why nations fail is that you really can't think of them separately because there are these feedback loops. I remember we learned about was Arthur Oaken had this model of like efficiency versus equality. And I think what he really meant was that Everybody wants the pie to be big. And then the only disagreements are really over kind of how the pie is divided and so forth. And I think you you said that, well, analytically that might make sense, but practically there's just no way that you can sort of separate these things out, right? Because there are plenty of people who, you know, don't actually, I mean, they would love the pie to be bigger in theory, but in practice, there's no way for them to support getting the pie bigger without them having to give up something. So, I mean, when you pull back and you look at the the feedback
1: loops, then you need a more general theoretical model, right? I think that's right. I mean, that's a good example. In practice, it's impossible to disentangle these distributional and efficiency issues. I mean, I think when I was a PhD student, it was almost impossible to write down a model where the equilibrium was inefficient. There was all of these statements, these desiderata by Robert Lucas and Robert Barrow and people about you couldn't have inefficiency in equilibrium because it was like having hundred dollar bills on the pavement and stuff like that. And you wonder, have these people never been in a poor country? Like someone should take them to Haiti, you know, or Nigeria or something and tell me the equilibrium is efficient. So that was part of the sort of cognitive dissonance for me as a PhD student, because you sit there with these famous economists going on about how everything's efficient and the Coase theorem predicts that everything's efficient. And then you know something about, I grew up in developing countries and you just like, for me, it was just a real struggle to have the confidence to say, no, I don't agree with that. That's actually nonsense. So let's get on with studying these things as they are. I mean, not to say that I understand as they are. There's many things that I don't understand.
0: Yeah, I remember probably one of the most seminal moments in my education was when we hosted Paul David to our seminar at University of Pennsylvania, and he's sort of the godfather of path dependence. And a big part of your book is about path dependence, right? The only way you can get to a place is, you know, it helps to start from the right place. But once you start digging into history, I mean, it seems like historians, they shy away from kind of general models. They shy away from making general claims. The typical historian will emphasize the uniqueness of every specific situation. How do you balance that? I mean, how do you balance between saying, hey, this is just an accident or this is just lucky or we managed to stumble into the right history? Because if that's the case, then there really aren't any lessons for policy, right? There aren't any lessons for decision makers.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that historians, given their methodology, are reticent to make these big statements because you can't know enough, like at the level of detail or seriousness that a historian would operate at. You can't be familiar with all the sources and all these different countries in different languages. You know, social science is very different from that. We don't go so much into the depth like historians do or anthropologists, and we want to try to see what's similar. And I think that's a very difficult thing to balance. I don't think you ever... Get it right, I'm endlessly racked with anxiety about whether I actually know enough about that case, or am I missing something, or is my knowledge too superficial? I teach in the history department here, I've worked with historians, but you can never be like them. So I think we have skills, they have skills. The most important thing is to talk and collaborate and appreciate other people's methods and other people's knowledge. I I tend to think that there's a lot of indeterminacy in the world in the sense that. Of particular idiosyncratic events or circumstances can lead to path dependence, can lead to a chain, a dynamic chain. And, you know, I remember when I was a PhD student, Paul David coming and giving that QWERTY paper at mm-hmm. Yale, actually, it was incredibly exciting. It sort of changed my life that day. You know, I went out with yeah. my head spinning. It's such a sort of inspiring agenda. So I think that's sort of how... Things are. You know, I don't think there's anything fundamental about Britain that made it so successful. It wasn't very successful, actually, as we point out in Why Nations Fell compared to Spain or France. But it happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right kind of political institutions to take advantage of different opportunities in the Atlantic and in the colonial world, there's nothing. I mean, look at Britain now, you know, it's a sad kind of marginal place. And that's probably how it ought to be, you know. So to say that there's something inevitable about the British empire or whatever, all the industrial revolution happening in Britain, no, it could have happened in the Netherlands. It could have happened in France. It could have happened in Germany. It could have happened in Spain. It didn't. So I tend to think of the world like that. You know, there's a lot of innovation. There's innovation in institutions, there's innovation in ideas and these equilibria get set up and they can be very persistent and they shut down lots of alternatives and they push societies in one way or another. But I think that's how humanity is. I don't think there's anything about ecology or geography or climate or whatever that condemns a society to poverty or indeed creates prosperity. You know, I think, I think humans are very creative. Humans can come up with technologies and institutions and ideas to kind of deal with many contexts. I always like the example, when I teach, I give the example of ants. So you may not know this, but, you know, there's 9,000 species of ants, different sorts of ants. And when ants got to Canada, you know, they speciated because Canada was a sort of cold and marginal place. So ants had to adapt to Canada. But when humans got to, when Homo sapiens got to Canada, they didn't speciate, you know, they invented igloos and they developed a taste for eating seal blubber and ice fishing. And so they innovated to adapt to the context. So for me, it's not like... The history of humanity is not like people being condemned to some outcome because of ecology or geography or whatever. It's that humans innovating to kind of flourish, you know, in whatever niche they find themselves. Well, so, but a development economist, I
0: mean, one of the criticisms that they would launch at the History Matters school is, okay, so the solution to our poverty is we need to just get a new history, right? If everything is contingent on the prior events, then we just have to kind of hope that we can get lucky, right? I mean, it's much more satisfying if you think that poverty is caused by uneducated leaders who just haven't been exposed to the right school of economics. And all you have to do is send some educators down and whisper in their ear about what they ought to be doing. And then they'll go, aha, oh, I didn't realize that we need to have free trade now. Oh, now I know. And I can just set in motion all of these policy changes. I mean, isn't that much more attractive? (laughs) It'd be much more hopeful.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of path dependence, but societies also change. Societies do change. It's just that we don't really have good generalizations about that. I don't know if that's to do with it. Like, here's an example. So think about Barbados or Mauritius. So those are two of the world's most successful societies economically in the last 30, 40 years. Barbados has GDP per capita of like $20,000 you go to Barbados, there isn't a poor person. You know, it's been very democratic since independence. And, but think about the history of Barbados. It was a sugar island colony. It was like Haiti. It was just thousands and th- tens of thousands of toiling slaves until the 19th century, after slavery was abolished, there was all these bans on migration to stop the slaves leaving. They had to go back into the sugarcane plantations. I mean, it's a horrible history, absolutely horrible. But in Barbados, they reinvented themselves. They've kind of freed themselves from that history and created an extremely prosperous and egalitarian society. Same with Mauritius. Mauritius even more so because it's industrial and it's even more diversified. So I think there are examples like that, but we don't have a magic wand. We don't understand like, how did they do that. There's a very interesting essay by Orlando Patterson actually about Barbados, but it's not very much about the specifics of Barbados and Bajan culture and institutions. And it's a beautiful piece of work, but it's not a general argument about how you make transitions or how you change societies. And I think we have some generalizations about that, but you know, I think you could say that they're pretty inadequate in why nations. Well. We talk about how sort of collective action that changes institutions and can kind of make them more inclusive. And it's a particular type of collective action associated with, With what we call a broad coalition, you need a kind of broad cross-section of society to really contest extractive institutions. But that's, I mean, I was just in Sudan in January, you know, in Sudan, they're in the middle of a very contested transition from a military dictatorship towards trying to, struggling to find a democratic society. And there you can say... There was a broad coalition which kind of ousted the former dictator, President al-Bashir. But as soon as President al-Bashir left, the broad coalition disintegrated and everybody fell out amongst themselves and then the military came back. So I think what we need, that's something we need, is to understand that much better. Like It's okay to have a broad coalition, but how do you keep people together? Like How do you find kind of collective projects that can keep people working towards a sort of inclusive society? So just to say... I think there is a way of thinking about policy in this kind of framework we have, but I think you have to be, wishful thinking doesn't really get you very far. You know, if you look at the development successes in the world in the last 50, 60 years, not one of them were caused by a development economist. They're all the societies themselves changing their trajectory, whether it be Barbados or Mauritius or India in the 1990s or China, you know, the late 1970s and 1980s. South Korea in the 1960s and 1970s, that wasn't anything to do with any development economists. So we should be a little bit humble about our kind of understanding of the world and our ability to influence it, no?
0: Well, let's just dig into the hypothesis in Why Nations Fail. I mean, in a nutshell, it's really without inclusive political institutions, you will not have kind of inclusive economic institutions, right? I mean, without inclusive politics, you will ultimately have less prosperity than you could. And I guess the question that a Kosian economist would ask is, well, why not, right? Why can't those deals be structured? Why wouldn't it make sense for, I mean, the King of England was no less of a self-interested maximizer than the King of France, right? So why is it that the King of England found it in his interest, I mean, institutionally, to cede this power, say, to parliament, right? I know you have specific stories. Is there a science of deal-making or, you know, architecting these Pareto-improving deals that could be somehow sent out into these dysfunctional equilibria and figure out ways to mutually beneficially,
1: you know, expand the pie? Well, I mean, I think the best generalization we have in social science is that that is to do with inclusive political institutions. It's to do with broadening the distribution of political power. You know, our view is that To have prosperity, you need to have inclusive economic institutions. You need to have broad-based incentives and opportunities if you're going to have innovation, if you're going to have entrepreneurship. And you can't have favors and monopolies and barriers to entry because it's never going to create innovation and it's never going to create secure property rights. And it's not going to create all the things economists have known for a long time generate economic growth. So where do you get such economic institutions from? And our view is very simple. You can't have inclusive economic institutions on the whim of some autocrat or dictator. It's who benefits from inclusive institutions. They have to be empowered politically to demand them. So I think the British monarchy didn't want to, they had Charles I had to be beheaded and James II had to be kicked out of power and run to France in the Glorious Revolution in order for a political equilibrium to emerge with more inclusive political institutions, which led to more inclusive economic institutions. Yeah, there was a king, there was William of Orange, but he was in a completely different place than James II was. He didn't have the the autocratic political project collapse. Parliament took over, because really it was Parliament who put William of Orange... In power, they passed a law saying James II had abdicated, and which he hadn't really, but they had the upper hand after that. That, again, that's a transfer of power. It's a transfer of power. That's what we emphasize so much, you know, politics driving economics. And this is, again, this is a brilliant one of Barry Weingast's seminal pieces of work with Doug North in 1989 on the Glorious Revolution, where they kind of emphasize that, The problem with the Stuart Monarchs is they had this massive commitment problem. They couldn't commit. No one would lend them money. Property rights were insecure. And it was, you had, how did you solve that commitment problem? They couldn't solve it. You could imagine, in principle, they could have created institutions or they could have tried to come up with some mechanism which would have solved their commitment problem, but they didn't. And maybe there's reasons for that. There's deep cultural reasons for that, which we never went into. You know, Charles I, for example. Charles I thought that he could cure people by touching them. In fact he did that 92,000 times. He really believed God had made him king. I think James II was not so much into that. But how do you solve this commitment problem by institutional design if it, if the king really believes that God made them king and they can cure you by touching you? I think like that's maybe that's just very hard to solve in, you know in a cost theoretic world. Well I
0: mean among lawyers there seems to be a faith in kind of written constitutions and kind of agreements that, that people come to. And so the solution would be, we want an independent central bank. Okay, then we were just going to legislate an independent
1: central bank. And I've always found that to be a bit naive. I think it helps, but there's other types of power relations. In that book that you were waving around earlier, Economic Origins of Dictatorship and Democracy, we make this distinction between sort of de jure power and de facto power. Like I can write a law and I can give you decision rights and that can help you, but I can overrule the law too. I can get guns or I can use collective action. There's other sorts of power that can kind of trump power that comes from institutions. So I think institutions matter. You know, I've done a lot of research in Colombia and South America. I studied a lot of institutional design, the origins of electoral institutions, for example, or constitutional solutions. And you know, when you get into the history and you sort of study how these people thought and the debates or whatever, you see they cared about institutions. They wanted to rewrite the rules. They understood that it might not stick and somebody could just ride roughshod over all of them, but they still thought it helped. I think there's a sort of balance between this can help. But there's other sorts of power and it may not work. But also, you know, it's very, uh, talking about, this is a very specific example of the British case. British people don't solve problems by writing constitutions. There still isn't a constitution in Britain. So I'm not sure it ever occurred to them to, you know, if you read the Bill of Rights, for example, which was passed after the Glorious Revolution, it's the vaguest thing. There was this problem with Parliament of like the monarchs not calling Parliament. So you might have thought it would be good to create a mechanism to sort of, imagine that parliament could call itself. If the king doesn't call you, you can constitute yourself. Well, they actually did try that a bit earlier and they just decided that. And then, so they didn't do it. And the language is very vague, you know, so that that's a British thing. And I'm British and I, even I'm not sure I understand it, but there's something very British about that sort of like everybody understands kind of, but yeah, anyway, but I think that's a specific British people don't think like that, but Latin Americans, Colombians do, they think the way you're outlining. And I do, I think it makes sense. It does doesn't necessarily work because it's part of an equilibrium with other sources of power
0: well I think there's another view that you find among some economists I mean there's a spectrum between strong state and weak state there are some that think that weak state is the solution right that allows the market to function better and the strong state is the problem I mean this seems to be a remarkably narrow view right to presumably you're looking over a very small set of cases because the secret to England's success as you point out is that the state was quite strong and quite effective. Why do you suppose we still find people who think in terms of this strong state means weak market, strong market means weak state?
1: Because I think it's so badly conceptualized in economics. You could take PhD classes in economic theory, microeconomic theory, general equilibrium theory. You'd never learn anything about the state. The state would never be mentioned. There'd be markets and property rights, and no one would be enforcing them. Nobody would be creating the market. There would be prices equilibrating supply and demand, and the state is never mentioned. So the state is just kind of implicit in economic theory. So then it appears, you know, when there's market failures, when there's externalities or there's public goods, And the state comes and raises taxes and provides public goods. But why is the state maximizing social welfare? You know, well, let's just assume that it is. And even there, the capacity of the state you're talking about is not. So I think it's like really confused in the minds of economists, honestly, like this whole issue of the state. So I think they tend to think of the state as raising too much taxes or, of course, there's discussion of corruption and things like that. But I think it's just generally confusing. I mean, if you read what Milton Friedman said about it, you know, I think he just thinks that the state can tax too much and the state. He didn't really have a very good positive theory, but the state could tax too much and it could regulate too much, and the private sector, uh, private individuals, are better at dealing with these problems themselves. And the state is. I just think like the whole issue of state capacity is just not well conceptualized. Like for me, it's interested in developing countries. It's obvious that the problem in developing countries is lack of state capacity. The state can't provide order. It can't provide basic public goods. It can't raise revenues. The rich countries of the world all have very powerful states that do a lot of taxing and public good provision. And I think we can have an honest debate about, do we think the state does too much in Sweden and it's sort of mollycoddles society too much and there's too much redistribution but it stifles independence and innovation do we think you know kind of state in like more anglo-saxon countries like britain or the us where the government does less i think that's a genuine debate about what we more you know but from my perspective all of those places have extremely effective state institutions. they're very good at taxing and providing public goods and order very peaceful high quality of public good provision So I think maybe it's also to do with the fact that economists are looking at a very particular slice of the variation. They're comparing Sweden and Germany and the US or something like that, and they're not thinking about Nigeria or Haiti, which is more my interest. Now, look, when you guys switch to the second book,
0: was the second book kind of filling a gap, sort of fleshing out exactly what is being included, right? So when you have these inclusive political institutions... What is this counterweight that forces the inclusiveness? Is that, I mean, is that the sort of motivation behind
1: the narrow corridor? I think that's a good way of saying it. The reason we wrote the narrow corridor, there are several reasons. One, you know, really the focus is on the emergence of inclusive political institutions. It's much less about economics, as you point out. We tried to refocus on other aspects of society that we think probably people value. I'm not sure liberty turns out to be a kind of very loaded word in the United States, but, you know, just sort of freedom in some broader sense than economic freedom. But I think in Why Nations Fail, we tried to keep things very simple. Let me just give you an example in a way that the more we thought about it, the less satisfactory it was. So we talk about extractive political institutions, but there's two dimensions to political institutions. There's this issue of the sort of breadth of political power in society, and there's also the capacity of the state so we say why nations fail. Well, you can have extracted political institutions if either or both of those things fail, e- either if the state lacks capacity or you have narrow distribution of political power. But once you start sort of unpacking that, you see that those societies are sort of radically different. We kind of put all these extremely different societies into this bin of extracted political institutions. And once you start unpacking that, that looks really interesting. And the distinctions look enormous. So in Why Nations Fail, we sort of point out, well, Somalia. Somalia is an example where actually you have a very broad distribution of political power, but there was no state traditionally in Somalia, and there really isn't much of a state today. It never existed. But that's a completely different society, of course, from China, where you have a different sort of failure of inclusive institutions. So one of the motivations of the Narrow Corridor was to come up with a framework where we could actually treat seriously these difference between different sorts of extractive political institutions and think about their dynamics. Because if you're interested in this question of how do you become inclusive, then the type of problems you have in those different societies are radically different. So I think that was part of the motivation. The other part was more of, I think part of the problem with inclusive and extractive institutions, it made it look too sort of discreet. You go from Extractive to inclusive when we talk about these transitions like the glorious revolution or whatever it is. But of course, it's much more of a process in reality. And I th- we thought that this framework in the narrow corridor kind of emphasized much more this process and the sort of the dynamic interaction between mm. the state and society. So in many ways, it was us kind of thinking through things that in order to write Why Nations Fail and keep it simple, we had to sort of not put under the rug, just kind of, you know, put on the back burner and which we always kept thinking about, I suppose, and trying to find a way of incorporating them into the analysis.
0: Right. And I think one of the key planks of your thesis in The Narrow Corridor is that there will be a tendency for these states to become more powerful. And if that tendency is not counterbalanced by a robust society. I mean, I, you didn't use the term, but I think a lot of people would talk about civil society, right, as a counterweight. Then these states will become more extractive and ultimately more sclerotic in a way, right? So I was struck by the similarities between what you're describing at the political level with what you see at the organizational level, say in business, right? And how companies will ultimately fail because the within the company there are constituencies that sort of hijack and take over the organization at the expense of the overall organization's
1: prosperity. I mean, yeah, you know, you're you're alluding to the fact that there's a particular kind of dynamic that drives this in the narrow corridor, we we have this sort of diagram where we look at this interaction between state and society. And there's these three sort of steady state equilibria. One where the state dominates society. One, let's think about that as China, one where society dominates the state, you could say Somalia. And then in the middle, there's this narrow corridor where there's something of a kind of balance between the state and society. And that creates a particular sort of dynamic where the state tries to dominate society and society tries to stop being dominated and tries to get the state under control. And that sort of drives both the creation of state capacity and you could say the capacity of society. So yeah, there's a whole dynamic there, which leads to kind of inclusive institutions that was completely missing from why nations fail, which we, you know, we have a formal model of and which we thought was very interesting when we started working on it. And we we just try to use a lot of historical examples to illustrate that dynamic. So building institutions is not an engineering problem. It's a kind of equilibrium between these different forces. And so the state is always trying to get out of control and Yeah, you can hem it in a bit with institutions and stuff, but it also needs society to do that. I mean, I'm not so familiar with this literature on organizations, but it definitely sounds relevant. Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: what I found most interesting is this idea that Hobbes was just wrong, right? I mean, you can remove the state and it's not going to necessarily lead to a war of all against all. I mean, there are these other alternative institutions that can suppress warfare right? But that those can be constrictive and oppressive as well, right? And you talk about the TIV and a couple other societies.
1: Yeah, that's what we call the cage of norms. There's different ways of substituting for a state without things looking like what Hobbes depicted, you know, but Hobbes was writing, you know, whenever in the 1640s, he didn't know that much about the rest of the world. So, so, so I don't want to, he was very influenced by the English Civil War, of course. So I don't want to beat up on him too much, but he didn't have the same knowledge of the world and the history that we do. And I think that's right. But of course, it's also true that those sort of equilibria in this Nigerian case of the TIV that we talk about quite a bit, that equilibrium doesn't really allow for a prosperous kind of modern society either. So in order to sort of stabilize this stateless equilibrium, that has all sorts of problems for the way the economy works and the way society works that don't really allow for a successful economic development either. Well,
0: now one of the things that you point to in England as the sort of source of at least English or Western European emergence was this European scissors, right? So you have the tradition of civil law that came from the Romans, combined with this idea of kind of self-government collectivities from the Germanic tribes. And these two, you know, came together in in England, of course, but also in other parts of Europe. And when you talk about kind of the level of political participation that you saw in a place like England, and it made me think a lot about de Tocqueville when he described America in the 19th century, where pretty much everybody was participating in politics in one way or another. I mean, in today's America, everyone is sort of obsessed with politics in a way, but they're not really participating in the same way that they were in the 19th century. Do you see contemporary United States sort of a, where are we in this corridor? Are we kind of moving in one direction or another?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think that story that you alluded to is our argument about how come Western Europe historically got into the corridor. And it was really this quite fortuitous merger of late, Roman state institutions with these very participatory institutions of these Germanic tribes that took over the whole of Western Europe. That's the explanation for why you have all these parliaments all over Western Europe, but that's one and a half thousand years ago. So then, so that, that's very deeply historical and it's a very kind of idiosyncratic combination of different elements that brings this particular type of state society nexus together. And then, you know, that sort of gets imported into the United States. And it's always a struggle. If you read the chapter in Why Nations Fail, for example, about the origins of, of colonial institutions in the US, again, the Virginia Company tries to set up a much more extractive system, but it sort of falls apart in the conditions of where you couldn't use slave labor, where you couldn't use, you couldn't exploit indigenous people, which was the first kind of strategy that the Virginia Company wanted to use because the indigenous people were too few on the ground and too difficult to exploit in in virginia in the early 17th century of course eventually they did start importing slaves and develop tobacco plantations but by that time there had already been a big change in the institutions. so we're not making an argument that there was some simple transplantation of like british institutions into america i mean there's david hackett fisher you know there are arguments along those lines in the historical literature But that's not our argument. That's another example of this sort of struggle in some sense that we were discussing before in the corridor. I don't know today. I mean, I feel like the United States has changed enormously since I first came here as a PhD student in the late 1980s. It's changed enormously in terms of the sort of politics and political polarization. I still see... Enormous dynamism in the economy. There's still enormous creativity and innovation in the economy. So I don't see economic institutions. Yeah, there's the enormously rich people. There's enormous increases in inequality. But, you know, that mostly seems to be created by people giving people what they want. You know, people like buying from Amazon. People like buying Tesla cars. This is not Mexico. It's not Colombia. So yeah, these people are getting incredibly rich and inequality has gone up a lot. But it, it's a globalization, it seems, fundamentally is what's driving that. The market is just enormously large compared to what it was historically. So I'm not sure. I may be worried about inequality, but I'm not worried that the inequality is being created by some very kind of perverse economic strategies. I'm more worried about what the political consequences of that inequality will be and whether that inequality will spill over into the political system and have a very large impact on politics. And and I think the institutions have been challenged a lot in the last five, six years. But I think one thing we point out in Why Nations Fail is that if you look at the history of the United States, institutions were also challenged a lot, at many times. So much worse things have happened in the United States than anything President Trump did. I know like That seems surprising, but actually it's true. So I think the system has been pretty resilient in the past, and there's always challenges to inclusive institutions. And so I don't know if I'm an optimist, but I think if you read the Federalist Papers, Madison was very clear that the reason you have institutions you design institutions in a particular way, you spread power, you make counter ambition, as he said, is because you're going to have people trying to destroy the institutions and trying to pervert things in their own interest in the way President Trump did and is still trying to do. But, you know, to me, it's I think we've all been living through this sort of period after the collapse of the Soviet Union of the end of history. But there is no end of history. We're back to something much more normal now in the past. It's just we sort of forgot it because We lived through this incredible period of peace and security and prosperity, and now we're back struggling with a more kind of normal world, it seems to me, honestly. Well, I mean, a big part of the
0: narrow corridor is about how countries can get from outside of the corridor into the corridor, right? But you also talk about countries that exit the corridor, right? And you told some stories about like Venice and Ferrara, and they're basically failures of society, right? Where society failed to kind of push back against the consolidation of power by the state. In fact, maybe even voluntarily kind of, you know, handing over this power. So if there's a science of getting into the corridor, maybe that's what the job of development economics is, to kind of think seriously about getting nations into these Carter. Sh- should there be a separate discipline that devotes at least as much resources to kind of keeping
1: countries in the corridor <laughs> that are in the corridor? And what would that discipline be called? I don't know about that. I think you're right. That's the way we would think about that. When we think about how do you solve these problems of development? Well, it's about getting into the corridor and getting these kind of dynamics going. And, you know, the way you'd approach that problem is very different depending on where you are. I think that's a useful way of thinking about it. But I always think once you start thinking about specific countries and about what's the problem, you know, to go back to Sudan, for example, when we talk about the Glorious Revolution, England in 1688 didn't have an army. It had a professional navy, but there was no army. There were militias, county militias, but there was no professional army. In fact, Parliament and everybody was just completely opposed to having a professional army because they didn't trust the king. But there is a professional army in Sudan, and that turns out to be a major difference and a major problem for transitioning to more inclusive institutions. So there's something that the historical example doesn't illustrate, but turns out to be a massive problem in practice. So I think about most of the Arab Spring countries, also the army was a massive problem. The army's back in power in Egypt. I think from our perspective, that's a helpful way of thinking about what the problem of development is. But I think in order to give useful policy advice, you have to really kind of get into all the details of different cases. And at some point, these big social science generalizations they don't help you much know what to do you know maybe the idea of kind of getting into the corridor and is useful and institutionalizing the power of civil society but how you deal with all the problems which are different you know the problem in Uzbekistan is different from the problem in Sudan and difficult different from the problem in Zimbabwe or Colombia and all those details are going to be very important in figuring out what to do
0: what's the role of interstate competition i mean i spend probably more time thinking about cases like Blockbuster and Kodak than I do thinking about Argentina and Zaire. But it seems like the organizations that are in a robust competitive market have a much higher likelihood of overcoming this fear of creative destruction than ones that manage to carve out a niche that is safe from competition. Is the same thing true with states? This was Charles Tilley's argument. I mean, if we look at a China, for instance. China really doesn't have a lot of competition. And so it really doesn't have any need to become any more inclusive than it is, right? Whereas if you have a country like Israel, which is besieged on all sides, it presumably will have a good incentive to do what it takes to maintain its prosperity, right?
1: That's a very important set of issues. I think it doesn't really enter too much (laughs) into our way of thinking. I mean, I think for us, this kind of competition between different parts of the world is very important at certain moments like colonial expansion or something where europeans set up these different types of societies but then most of our theory is about the sort of internal dynamics and yeah i mean it's a good point but i'm not i think we've always struggled to kind of see what the evidence says about that just take your example it's true china doesn't have really have any competitors so whatever it's doing It's not being driven by the threat of being absorbed by some other great power. And then look at Israel. I mean, Israel has just been so kind of incredibly successful economically and politically struggling at the moment. But it's surrounded by countries with extractive institutions, like Egypt is extractive. Syria is extractive. Lebanon has been sort of taken over by Hezbollah. So it's generated instead these kind of ideological projects that haven't led to the kind of economic flourishing. I mean, the Leban- economy in Lebanon just basically collapsed in the last year. Somehow Hezbollah's political project doesn't necessitate in making Lebanon prosperous or inclusive. That's just kind of orthogonal to what their project is in kind of taking this fight to Israel. So, I mean, I think those examples are fantastic that you're raising, but I'm not sure they illustrate the idea that interstate competition Generates prosperity. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I'm actually doing a lot of research on at the moment in Africa, also, which is sort of fascinating, is that since independence from colonialism in Africa, there's been very little interstate warfare. There's been a few things, but very little. I mean, it's a sort of puzzle in international relations. But actually, if you go back into history, it's just like that, too. You know, I mean, at the time of the scramble for Africa, I sort of calculated back of the envelope calculations suggest there might have been like 8,000 different polities in Africa, like 8,000 independent sort of political entities. There's very little evidence for interstate kind of conflict of the type that went on in Western Europe that Tilly described, like they sort of developed a culture of coexistence, if you like. I hesitate to use the word culture, but I just did. They developed ways of sort of coexisting in a very interesting way that actually I just started studying. I mean, you're right. There's a set of issues there that we maybe have neglected and people have accused us of neglecting, but I'm just giving you a little bit of the logic behind the reason for neglecting them.
0: Well, I think one of the problems with historical analysis is that it is kind of unscientific in the way that natural sciences are. I mean, it's kind of like geology, right? I mean, you can tell a story, but it's very difficult to run experiments. And I think that in your book, Natural Experiments of History, I mean, is this represent sort of a a new approach to doing historical analysis? I mean, economists have been moving in the direction of experiments, field experiments, lab experiments, but also looking for natural experiments. Should we be spending more time trying to do comparative historical analysis in ways
1: that kind of look like experiments? Well, I, you know, I think that book, which I edited with Jared Diamond, is sort of trying to project this methodology back into the past and sort of playing around whether this gives you a more disciplined way of thinking about kind of historical comparisons But I think without data, you know, we can't get standard errors. It's difficult to do the type of analysis historically, even when you can use this kind of controlled way of thinking that we would do in the contemporary world where we could get data, we could use a natural experiment and actually test things kind of more systematically. Once you get into the historical period, yeah, you know, perhaps you can construct data. In that book, we looked at the French invasion of Germany as a sort of Napoleonic invasion of Germany as a natural experiment. And that helps you think about a kind of control, a treatment group and a control group. I don't know if that got much traction in history. <laughs> I think in economic history, it, yeah, it gets a lot of traction. But we we were trying to reach the historians. I'm not sure that we succeeded. But, you know, they have their strengths, I guess, and we have ours. Well, I think at one point you said that you can't really engineer prosperity. But presumably
0: there are a set of tools that you could offer to say political entrepreneurs who are perhaps thinking about how they can structure institutions in ways that would enhance prosperity. I mean you, you talk about Solon and that's kind of a unique character, right? There's not a lot of politicians out there that that are kind of voluntarily imposing shackles on themselves. So where would you, if you were thinking about some kind of intervention How would you think about developing a tool of interventions that folks could use, either internal political entrepreneurs or perhaps, you know, if you went to the IMF, if you went to the agencies that are essentially offering conditional aid to governments, is there a set of tools that we can extract from history? Is there a toolbox that we could potentially
1: assemble? I think there's strategies. I actually have a talk about this where I talk about strategies. You see people in different contexts using particular strategies. There's opponents to reform and you have to deal with the opponents and you have to buy them off or you have to kind of make them secure in this new equilibrium. Yeah, there's political strategies I think that people use a lot. One of the best books about that is actually Robert Caro's biography of Robert Moses, who ran New York City for many decades. And Robert Moses was just a master of political strategy. So actually some of my ideas are from Robert Caro's Lyndon Johnson, also his biography of Lyndon Johnson, same thing. Lyndon Johnson was a kind of master of strategy and coalition building and kind of marginalizing opponents and getting people into his team and things like that. So I think there are ideas like that. I mean, I'm not sure. The International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, they don't want to know about politics, none of them. But I'm always concerned about there's so many unintended consequences of things like that. I'm not sure it's terribly responsible or ethical for an academic to get into that business. It's a little bit frightening because it's so complicated thinking through all of the consequences of these strategies. Well,
0: my, my background is in economic history, but I now spend all my time with business folks. And when I teach strategy, it's wonderful to go in and say, well, this is what the company ought to be doing. But... When you actually get to the company, you realize that none of that matters unless you have some grounding in power and politics. And so we make sure that we teach all of our students the power and politics so they can figure out ways to actually broker those deals that they need to make. So I look forward to looking at that talk. James, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Lots of great books here. I really think everybody ought to read Why Nations Fail, and The Narrow Corridor, regardless of whether you're a historian, a political scientist, or an economist, just every educated reader, I think, ought to check out your work. So I appreciate you joining me. Hope to see you again sometime soon, perhaps in person.
1: My pleasure. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning
0: in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes,